Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you may be watching or listening, thank you for joining me. My name is Tom Gosling. I'm a business and property barrister specialising in contentious probate litigation at 23ES Chambers. Today I'll be looking at undue influence in 2022. I'll be doing so exclusively in the context of wills. So if you're looking for insight and analysis of lifetime transactions or undue influence in contracts, you're in the wrong place. The increasingly elderly population, increasing property prices, cost of living crisis and generational dependence on inherited wealth combine with other socio-economic factors to result in a greater number of contentious probate cases. And one of the first pleas often made is that of undue influence, whether on its own or in conjunction with pleas of testamentary capacity and want of knowledge and approval. So I thought it was an opportune time to have a refresh and a practical examination of developments in this area for the assistance of those advising in or defending claims of undue influence. The coronavirus pandemic has also potentially sown the seeds of a fresh crop of contentious probate cases, with what I anticipate may well prove to be a healthy quota of cases involving undue influence. We have a pandemic with an increased mortality impacting elderly and those with comorbidities, isolated elderly and vulnerable family members, limited contact with family, friends and the community, and social support services which usually provide a cross-check or balance for potential abuse. There's been increased pressure on doctors, social services, care providers, which again might otherwise uh, prevent or identify the opportunities for such abuse. Uh, there's an encouragement to put affairs in order and revisit testamentary wishes. A legitimate aim, but potentially open to being exploited for illegitimate purpose. The introduction of remote witnessing of wills by the changes introduced to the Wills Act 1837 from July 2020, and backdated to January 20, um, Respondents to the government survey in respect of remote witnessing of wills, uh, it hasn't been widely undertaken, but those respondents, so not necessarily a representative example, identify that 14% of wills executed since that time had been done so remotely, a small but not insignificant percentage. And then there's limited contact and communication between family members who would otherwise care and support for the elderly. Along with that, we've had long periods of isolation that leaves family members to dwell and think upon the ever-increasing conspiracy theories which their elderly relatives have or may well have been subjected to. These provide a melting pot of opportunity, motive, suspicion and intrigue. And I look forward to the first case in which I'm instructed, in which undue influence is invited to be pleaded or pleaded against, where the uh, medium of the undue influence is said to be via Zoom, Teams or FaceTime. So today I'll be looking at three areas. First, an examination of the essential characteristics of undue influence. What is it? And more importantly, what is not undue influence? Secondly, and to complete the framework in which these cases are determined, a refresher as to the burden and standard of proof to be applied. And third, Proving or undermining the plea of undue influence. Extracting some themes from cases in which pleas have succeeded or failed, 
we examine some of the practical lessons and evidential considerations to be taken into account when marshalling evidence to prove or undermine a plea of undue influence. So, let's look at the essential characteristics of undue influence. One could glibly answer the question, well, what is undue influence? By simply saying it is exactly what it says on the tin, influence which is undue. The difficulty lies in identifying how undue must be the influence to surpass the threshold and warrant the court intervening to set aside a will. The starting point is Sir J.P. Wilde in Hall and Hall, 1868. The undue influence is pressure of whatever character is so exercised to overpower the volition without convincing the judgment. The classic statement that was given to the jury in Wingrove in Wingrove in 1885 is also of assistance. To be undue influenced in the eyes of the law, there must be, to sum it up in one word, coercion. But the direction went on to say, and is equally informative, because if the testator has only been persuaded or induced by considerations which you may condemn, really and truly, to intend to give his property to another, though you may disapprove of the act, yet it is strictly legitimate in the sense of it being legal. It is only where the will of the person who becomes a testator is coerced into doing that which he does not desire to do, that it is undue influence. The modern statement of the law of undue influence is set out uh, in Re Edwards in 2007, starting at paragraph 47, and it was cited and applied in a subsequent line of cases, including Cowderoy and Cranfield in 2011, Wharton and Bancroft also in 2011, Schrader and Schrader in 2013, and Chin and Chin in 2019, amongst others. Coercion or pressure to overpower the volition of the testator is what is needed. It is often said that the testator may be led, but must not be driven. Bad influence is not enough. It must be coercion. Persuasion is not enough. Inducement or the existence of a quid pro quo for the testamentary disposition is not enough. So too, appeals to the affections of the testator, kindred ties, sentiments of gratitude for past services, or appeals on the basis of current or future destitution are not undue influence. It will be apparent that whilst one is concerned with coercion, one is not concerned so much with the nature of the undue influence, but its effect on the testator. And that is where the focus really lies. Clients certainly, but often advisers also, focus on the nature of the conduct but give insufficient consideration to establishing or undermining, as the case may be, the necessary effect of it on the test data. The last limb of the test in Re Edwards, and as was noted in Wharton and Bancroft, acknowledges that physical and mental strength of the test data are relevant factors in determining how much pressure 
is necessary to overbear the will, and where the dividing line between legitimate persuasion on the one hand and impermissible coercion is drawn. A weak, vulnerable, meek and compliant testator may be more susceptible to coercion without physical threats of violence, whereas a fit, healthy, robust individual who knows and is not afraid to express and stand up for their own views might only be readily seen to have their will overborne in the face of the most extreme threats of violence or similar conduct. There are a number of practical justifications for this calibration of the high level of undue being at coercion rather than simply strong persuasion. First, it respects the principle of testamentary freedom. As Mr Justice Lewison in Edwards uh, said, a testator is free to dispose by the will however they wish. The court is not concerned with ensuring that the disposition is fair, but is ensuring that the testator has acted as a free agent in making that gift. Second, if the test were not coercion, but say strong persuasion, there's the obvious floodgates argument. And third is an issue of time. The delay between the making of the will and the date of death would become less significant if the test were not coercion. Persuasion may be operative for decades or for substantial periods of time, whereas undue influence persists until the date of death or emancipation from that, the freedom from the dominion or control of the perpetrator. So if the period between the making of the disputed will and death is a long one, questions start to be asked as to why the testator did not revoke the will or write a new one, or whether therefore the necessary causative element can be satisfied. An example of what might be perceived as lesser conduct of undue influence is the case of Chin and Chin in 2019, in which the court upheld challenges on the grounds of both want of knowledge and approval and undue influence. With regard to the latter, the court found that it was permissible for a husband to freely express his views as to how his wife should leave property upon her death in a way which accorded with their cultural traditions and to use persuasion to that end. However, the court ultimately found that a line had been crossed in that the pressure and the persuasion exerted by the husband was such that his wife succumbed to it for the sake of a quiet life and to avoid family squabbles. She was worn down by such pressure to the extent that the will represented her husband's wishes rather than her own wishes. So this drip-drip effect can be the operative mechanism of procuring a will by undue influence. In summary, if the testator were alive and giving evidence, they would be heard to say words to the effect of, yes, that is my will, but I did not want to do it, but I had to. At this point, I should mention the alternative cause of action and subset of undue influence, that of fraudulent calumny. The leading authority on this is, again, Ree Edwards, where he stated that the basic idea is that if A poisons the testator's mind against B, 
who would otherwise be a natural beneficiary of the testator's bounty by casting dishonest aspersions on his character. The essence of fraudulent calumny is that the person alleged to have been poisoning the testator's mind must either know that the aspersions are false or not care whether they are true or false. Now, Edwards, Kinnicky, Marco, Ray and Ray in 2019, and a recent case in April 2022 from District Judge Woodburn in Bristol, a case of Whittle, in which a plea of fraudulent calumny was established, where his sister had labelled her brother and his wife as psychopaths and criminals to the uh, testator. Fraudulent calumny is therefore a mechanism by which a testator's mind may be poisoned by the perpetrator. I turn now to consider the second limb, the burden and standard of proof in undue influence claims. Pleas of undue influence, like fraud or forgery, are discouraged and should only be made where evidence truly supports it. The bringing of an allegation of undue influence is a serious one and ought not to be raised without cogent evidence. Consistent with cases of fraud, the courts have repeatedly warned and made orders that those who bring such pleas without sufficient basis or where unsuccessful, the probability is that they will be condemned in costs. There is no presumption of undue influence, unlike in some lifetime transactions. The burden of a plea of undue influence rests exclusively and always on the party asserting it. The standard of proof, whilst the civil standard of the balance of probabilities, is rather more difficult in practice. As with all cases where what is being proved is quasi-criminal in nature, the courts will take into account that the more serious the allegation, the stronger the evidence that is required before the court will accept that the plea is made out. This concept has been put in many different ways in many different types of cases. Uh, to introduce a new one, if you hear a clip-clop outside your window, it's a horse and not a zebra. But using this analogy, a plea of undue influence, one is attempting to prove the zebra. So one needs compelling evidence of it. Now, this is made all the more stark and difficult when it's appreciated that very rarely are there cases where there is a good, let alone compelling, direct evidence of actual undue influence. So the party seeking to prove is left marshalling a complex matrix of fact, where each fact may vary in significance or be construed in alternative hues. It is not sufficient to establish undue influence that there is a beneficiary who benefits to the exclusion of others and who has had both the opportunity and the motive. The same is apparent from the decision of Mrs Justice Proudman in Hubbard and Scott in 2011 at paragraph 45. There must be positive proof of coercion overpowering the volition of the test data. Likewise, it's not sufficient to show that the circumstances of the making of the will are clouded by suspicion or consistent with the will having been obtained by undue influence. The off-cited passage from Clay, Craig 
and Lamoureux in 1920 is that the court should be satisfied that it is inconsistent with any contrary hypothesis. Now, whilst this quote often makes its way into both the authorities and is repeated by defendants in correspondence and skeleton arguments, it's often misunderstood and overstated. In Cowderoy and Cranfield in 2011, the court held that this was nothing more than a reminder of the high burden, even on the civil standard, that the claimant bears in proving undue influence as vitiating a testamentary disposition. And as was stated by Mr Justice Norris in Wharton and Bancroft, the danger with adopting uh, the alternative hypothesis test is that the relevant standard of proof can be lost sight of if this uh, exacting test is interpreted literally. Now, of course, that, logically speaking, must be right. If we adopt a Sherlock Holmes approach of deductive reasoning, so excluding all other possibilities, then we are proving a matter to a test that is perfectly logical, a standard even higher than beyond reasonable doubt. So it seems that the alternative hypothesis for the terms of the will is properly falls to be applied as a tool for testing the strength of the undue influence claim. Now, Wharton and Bancroft is a good example of a case where provision made by the testator could be explained by a narrative not involving undue influence. The testator made a deathbed gift, leaving the entirety of his £4 million estate to his partner of 32 years in contemplation of his intended marriage to her, which took place immediately thereafter. The testator's daughter challenged the will, alleging undue influence as well as want of knowledge and approval. Mr Justice Norris pointed out that a deathbed marriage, a deathbed will, a large estate and the absence of any provision for the testator's family were all matters likely and commonly encountered to provoke indignation and a sense of unfairness. However, there was no direct evidence of coercion. It was not surprising on the facts of that case that Mr Wharton should have wanted to execute a will in favour of his wife of effectively 32 years who he had simply just chosen to marry formally. He was also concerned that the taxman should get nothing on his death and the only way to ensure that would have been via the will in favour of his then, by that time, wife. CPR 57.7, subsection 4, subsection C, provides that undue influence must be specifically pleaded and give particulars of the facts and matters relied upon. So generic pleadings that between X and Y date, the defendant coerced the de deceased so as to overpower uh, their volition and execute a will in favour of the defendant will not wash in a particulars of claim or counterclaim. Particulars of direct evidence or the facts and matters from which the court will be invited to draw the inference of sufficient coercion will be necessary. Armed with this knowledge and framework, Atiens consider the third question of proving and undermining the plea of undue influence. The claimant must establish, whether by direct evidence or inference to be drawn from other proven facts, 
five matters. First, the opportunity to exercise influence. Secondly, the actual exercise of influence. Thirdly, and distinctly, the actual exercise of influence in relation to the disputed will. Fourth, that the influence was undue. It went beyond mere persuasion and amounts to coercion. And fifth and finally, that the will before the court was brought about by these means. It's always been acknowledged by the courts that positive evidence of undue influence is rare. Carapetto and Good in 2002 says as much. And the court will often need, will be requested to draw inferences from other facts proved. By reason of the very nature of undue influence, perpetrators rarely document their endeavours, which generally occur behind closed doors. But the existence of direct evidence is not impossible. For example, in one case in which I've been instructed, a carer of a vulnerable testator gave direct evidence that she had been invited, if not instructed, by the alleged perpetrator to coach a vulnerable testator in relation to his relationship between the disinherited siblings and coaching in advance of giving instructions to a solicitor and in fact executing his signature upon the will. In another case in which I was involved, there were in fact recordings of the perpetrator of the alleged undue influence having conversations with the mother and testator in question at the time that the mother was shortly to make phone calls to the solicitor giving instructions in relation to the preparation and execution of that very will. So direct evidence is a possibility, albeit rare. Instead of seeking to paint a picture, which is the analogy adopted in most cases in respect of evidence, the reality in undue influence cases is that one is seeking to weave a complex tapestry where each thread can take a sharp turn at any particular moment, and the way in which they overlay one another can often be subject to the uncertainties of individual judicial impressions and interpretations. There is a spectrum of what clients regard as dubious behaviour, although, of course, clients will vary in their, significantly in their attitude as to the acts of others, one can usually count on them to see a sniper in every tree and will construe every act or statement in the worst possible light. But nowhere is that more so where they harbour strong suspicions about actions which may have occurred and is believed to have brought about the disputed will. The court must ask itself the question, were these acts malign or benign? A relative and substantial beneficiary of a recently executed will may well have assisted the testator with arranging their financial affairs, even preparations for the execution of the will. But it does not mean that those actions are malign and equate and are consistent with a case of undue influence. An interesting application of undue influence is in the 2013 case of Schrader and Schrader, in which the plea of undue influence was successful. 
After a significant examination of the evidence, Mr Justice Mann concluded that there was undue influence. The deceased was a vulnerable and was dependent upon her son, Nick. This dependence has increased since a fall that occurred in 2005 and she would have been concerned that Nick might move out from the property. Will writers were engaged, rather than the family solicitor, for which no explanation was proffered. There was no reason identified in evidence for the, for the testatrix changing her will in favour of Nick, who did not need the whole estate, even to meet his housing needs. Importantly, he was found to be a forceful man with a strong physical presence. In fact, he had a conviction for violence following an assault at a wedding. In comparison with his mother, who was vulnerable, it was also found that Nick had a belief that he and his brother, who he described in terms of hatred, were not treated equally by their parents. Nick also maintained that he was distanced from the will and did not know of its terms, but it subsequently transpired that he had hand in a consideration of the draft. He also waited six months after the deceased's death to produce the will, suggesting he may have had misgivings about the circumstances. The judge stated that in all those circumstances I find that undue influence has been proved. I think that they require the inference that Nick was instrumental in sowing his mother's mind to the desirability of having the house, and in doing so he took advantage of her vulnerability. It is not possible to determine any more than the precise form of pressure or its occasion or occasions, but it is not necessary to do so. I am satisfied that this will results from some form of undue influence. So in this case, there was no express discussion of an inconsistent hypothesis, just findings based upon the credibility of his Nick, his relationship with his mother, and his lack of candor regarding the making of the will, and some general suspicious circumstances. So it remains that if circumstances are such that there is a strong enough smell and no other obvious hypothesis to remove that stench, it may be possible to establish undue influence. Winners in terms of claims of undue influence alongside that of Schrader and Schrader include Edwards and Edwards from 2007, Schlomberg and Taylor 2013, Chin and Chin from 2019. Losers, cases in which claims of undue influence have been unsuccessful include the case of Carapetto and Good in 2002, Ark and Core in 2010, Hubbard and Scott from 2011. A salutary warning was given in the last case uh, for those clients who would wish to rely upon suspicion alone to establish a case, where the judge stated, the parties seem to think that a judge can look into the hearts of a witness and somehow divine the truth. That is not how the system works. Wharton and Bancroft in 2011, the £4 million estate uh, left to wife effectively of 32 years, Cowdroy and Cranfield in 2011, 
where nearly two years after making the will, the deceased had died, and the claims centred around want of testamentary capacity and want of knowledge. Undue influence was a mere make-weight and treated as such by the judge, who found no facts which supported the inference and offers a salutary tale about making such allegations without appropriate evidence. Edkins and Hopkins in 2016, a testator's will was valid where it left the majority of his estate to a friend and colleague of 24 years rather than a family he had separated from. Despite his poor physical health and occasional episodes of confusion, he'd shown sufficient testamentary capacity and his will consistently reflected the state of his relationships. The friend may have encouraged him, but had not coerced him. Coles and Reynolds in 2020, a decision of his honour Judge Matthews, sitting as a judge of the High Court in Bristol, is a further case where a sister's claim of undue influence failed. A will made by a vulnerable testatrix which departed substantially from the terms of her earlier will by excluding a formula beneficiary was deemed not to have been procured by undue influence. Although the deceased was frail and vulnerable, her mental capacity was not challenged. She relied on help from the first defendant, but not exclusively so. There was no credible evidence of financial abuse or that she, the deceased had been forced to attend the appointment to execute the will, or sign a contemporaneous statement, which explained the reasons for her departure from the earlier testamentary dispositions. The first defendant was not involved in the preparation of the will, and the deceased was well aware that the defendants owned a 50% share in the property. So what themes or evidential considerations can we extract from some of these cases? I'd suggest that they reduce into three key areas. The testator, the alleged perpetrator, and the alternative hypothesis or hypotheses. And at all stages, opportunity and motive are the key. So in terms of the testator, were they in fear? Were they, did they have apprehension? Were they vulnerable, subservient, or demonstrate a willingness to please? Retrospective psychiatric reports are often deployed, normally in conjunction with pleas of lack of testamentary capacity. And the good ones, at least, cannot opine on whether or not the deceased was in fact unduly influenced. But they can be useful in assisting uh, an understanding of the physical and psychological background of the testator to assess their susceptibility to undue influence, uh, the ease at which their will might be overborne. Such reports often cite a 2009 academic study, The Wills of o Older People, Risk Factors for Undue Influence, which can be a useful starting point for so-called red flags of undue influence. These include social and environmental factors, such as dependency, isolation, family conflict, or recent bereavement, psychological and physical risk factors, disability, mental disorder, substance abuse, and what are termed legal risk factors, surprising provisions in the will, departure from previously expressed testamentary dispositions, 
involvement of the beneficiary in the preparation of the will, no independent solicitor, will writer or advice. These can be useful to show situations where coercion might be easier to exert successfully. So when looking beyond uh, the testator's susceptibility, what are the evidential considerations? Details of the testator's relationships. Who did they see regularly or infrequently? What was the testator's character and intelligence? If meek, mild-mannered, and a sheep who easily follows, one who is suggestible and looks to please, might be found to be easier to coerce and have their will overborne than an individual who always stands up for themselves and is always looking for and prepared to enter into a fight. Were they dependent on others? If so, to what extent? And what was the nature of that dependency? What were their previous wills? Or expressions of testamentary wishes? The classic example is the sibling who complains that the deceased repeatedly said, it will be shared equally between the children. Medical evidence as to physical, psychological conditions, medical regimens and treatments are vital. Social services records, have they raised any safeguarding concerns? Likewise, care or nursing home records, perhaps lower down the list for their obvious or potential conflict of interest. Family and friends, what do they say? What were their involvement with the deceased? Can they offer any insight into to assist the court in its understanding of the testator, their makeup, and their susceptibility, and the likelihood and probability of undue influence either occurring or not occurring, depending on which side of the case one falls. The second area for focus is the perpetrator, and often allegations uh, and initial instructions will focus on the perpetrator and the events in question. The first, the testator, must not be ignored. The credibility of the alleged perpetrator is fundamental, for it is that which one is seeking to impugn by the allegation of undue influence. The court must ask itself, in light of the evidence which is presented to it, are they the sort of person who would engage in coercive behaviour in order to secure the change in the testator's will? The claimant will need evidence to establish this. At the same time, the defendant, the alleged perpetrator, will need evidence as to their good character, or might be demonstrative of the unlikelihood of them engaging in such activity. What is often key is what is their motive for doing so. Now, ordinarily, ordinarily that motive is stark and obvious. It's greed. It's a purely financial one. But often there's a subtext of sibling rivalry, family dispute, or perceived writing of a historical unfairness within the family. Next in relation to the perpetrator is opportunity. What was the opportunity of the coercer to apply coercion? It is no good making an allegation of undue influence if one cannot establish that there was any contact around the material time surrounding the instruction preparation and execution of the disputed will, 
between the alleged perpetrator and the testator. And it is difficult to contemplate a scenario in which one could not establish, at the very least, some form of communication, but nevertheless enable the court to find that under due influence was in fact present. So claimants need to apply their mind to when did these visits occur? Were they daily in contact with the deceased? Did they go around there and care for them? Did they see them on a weekly basis? And what was their involvement in terms of the preparation of the will? How was it all brought about? The timeline is often fundamental, but being able to demonstrate uh, that opportunity to coerce the deceased is what is key. If they've not been involved in the will-making process, then of course it's going to be difficult to demonstrate the necessary causation between undue influence and the will. The alleged perpetrator will often look to be exonerated by the alternative hypothesis. So one needs to look at and either rule in or rule out the unlikely nature of any alternative explanations for the terms of the will. Was the deceased estranged from the disinherited family members? Was there a falling out? Was there any basis for the claims for service or reward that was being given to the defendant? If the circumstantial evidence is strong and aligned in one direction, the court may not be as exacting as to the precise coercive mechanism as uh, Mr Justice Proudman in Hubbard and Scott. Positive proof of coercion may therefore take many forms. Having regard to the length of trials which are often engaged in undue influence cases, in one there was 40 witnesses spanning over 11 days, the difficulty of resolving these claims at an early stage, one sage piece of preliminary advice is that these cases are lengthy, often expensive, and will require a significant amount of front-loaded expenditure. The key factors and the key takeaways to be borne in mind are coercion, the testator, the perpetrator, and the alternative hypothesis. Thank you.